Section 1 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Ellen Clacy. Section 1. Introductory Remarks. It may be deemed presumptuous that one of my age and sex should venture to give to the public an account of personal adventures in a land which has so often been descanted upon by others and abler pens. But when I reflect on the many mothers, wives, and sisters in England, whose hearts are ever longing for information respecting the dangers and privations to which their relatives at the Antipodes are exposed, I cannot but hope that the presumption of my undertaking may be pardoned in consideration of the pleasure which an accurate description of some of the Australian goldfields may perhaps afford to many, and although the time of my residence in the colonies was short, I had the advantage, not only in Melbourne, but whilst in the bush, of constant intercourse with many experienced diggers and old colonists, thus having every facility for acquiring information respecting Victoria and the other colonies. It was in the beginning of April, 1850, blank, that the excitement occasioned by the published accounts of the Victoria diggings induced my brother to fling aside his Homer and Euclid for the various guides printed for the benefit of the intending gold-seeker, or to ponder over the shipping columns of the daily papers. The love of adventure must be contagious, for three weeks after, so rapid were our preparations, found myself accompanying him to those auriferous regions. The following pages will give an accurate detail of my adventures there. In a lack of the marvellous will consist their principal faults, but not even to please would I venture to turn uninteresting truth into agreeable fiction. Of the few statistics which occur, I may safely say, as of the more personal portions, that they are strictly true. The Voyage Out Everything was ready, boxes packed, tinned and corded, farewells taken, and ourself whirling down by rail to Gravesend, too much excited, too full of the future, to experience that sickening of the heart, that desolation of feelings, which usually accompanies an expatriation, however voluntary, from the dearly loved shores of one's native land. Although in the cloudy month of April, the sun shone brightly on the masts of our bonny bark, which lay in full sight of the windows of the old falcon, where we had taken up our temporary quarters. The sea was very rough, but as we were anxious to get on board without further delay, we entrusted our valuable lives in a four-oared boat, despite the dismal prognostications of our worthy host. A pleasant row that was, at one moment covered over with salt water, the next riding on top of a wave, ten times the size of our frail conveyance. Then came a sudden concussion. In veering our rudder smashed into a smaller boat, which immediately filled and sank, and our rowers disheartened at this mishap would go no further. The return was still rougher. My face smarted dreadfully from the cutting splashes of the salt water. They contrived, however, to land us safely at the old falcon, though in a most pitiable plight charging only a sovereign for this delightful trip, very moderate considering the number of salt-water bars they had given us gratis. In the evening a second trial proved more successful, 
and we reached our vessel safely. A first night on board ship has in it something very strange, and the first awakening in the morning is still more so. To find oneself in a space of some six feet by eight, instead of a good-sized room, and lying in a cot scarce wide enough to turn round in, as a substitute for a four-post bedstead, reminds you in no very agreeable manner that you have exchanged the comforts of old England for the roughing it of a sea-life. The first sound that awoke me was the cheerily song of the sailors, as the anchor was heaved, not again, we trusted, to be lowered till our eyes should rest on the waters of Port Philip. And then the cry of, Raise tacks and sheets, which I, in nautical ignorance, interpreted as haystacks and sheep, sent many a sluggard from their berths to bid a last farewell to the banks of the Thames. In the afternoon we parted company with our steam-tug, and next morning, whilst off the Isle of Wight, our pilot also took his departure. Sea-sickness now became the fashion, but as I cannot speak from experience of its sensations, I shall altogether decline the subject. On Friday the 30th we sighted Stark Point, and as the last speck of English land faded away in the distance, an intense feeling of misery crept over me, as I reflected that perchance I had left those most dear to return to them no more. But I forget, a description of private feelings is, to uninterested readers, only so much twaddle, beside being more egotistical than even an account of personal adventures could extenuate. So, with the exception of a few extracts from my log, I shall jump at once from the English Channel to the more exciting shores of Victoria. Wednesday, May the 5th, latitude 45 degrees 57 minutes north, longitude 11 degrees 45 minutes west. Whilst off the Bay of Biscay, for the first time I had the pleasure of seeing the phosphoric light in the water, and the effect was indeed too beautiful to describe. I gazed again and again, and as the darkness above became more dense, the silence of evening more profound, and the moving lights beneath more brilliant, I could have believed them the eyes of the Undines, who had quitted their cool grottoes beneath the sea to gaze on the daring ones who were sailing above them. At times one of these stars of the ocean would seem to linger around our vessel, as though loath to leave the admiring eyes that watched its glittering progress. Sunday the ninth, Latitude 37 degrees 53 minutes north, Longitude 15 degrees 32 minutes west. Great excitement throughout the ship. Early in the morning a homeward-bound sail hove in sight, and as the sea was very calm, our captain kindly promised to lower a boat and send letters by her. What a scene then commenced! Nothing but scribes and writing-desks met the view, and naught was heard but the scratching of pens and energetic demands for foreign letter-paper, festers, or sealing-wax. Then came a rush on deck to witness the important packet delivered to the care of the first mate, and watch the progress of the little bark that was to bear among so many homes the glad tidings of our safety. On she came, her stun-sails set, her white sails glittering in the sun, skimming like a sea-bird over the waters. She proved to be the Maltese schooner Felix, bound for Bremen. Her captain treated the visitors from our ship with the greatest politeness, 
promised to consign our letters to the first pilot he should encounter off the English coast, and sent his very last oranges as a present to the ladies, for which we sincerely thanked him. The increasing heat of the weather made them acceptable indeed. Wednesday the 12th. Latitude 33 degrees 19 minutes north. Longitude 17 degrees 30 minutes west. At about noon we sighted Madeira. At first it appeared little more than a dark cloud above the horizon. Gradually the sides of the rocks became clearly discernible. Then the wind bore us onward, and soon all traces of the sunny isle were gone. Friday the 28th. Latitude 4 degrees 2 minutes north. Longitude 21 degrees 30 minutes west. Another opportunity of sending letters. But as this was the second time of so doing, the excitement was proportionately diminished. The vessel was bound for the port of Liverpool from the coast of Africa. Her cargo, so said those of our fellow travellers who boarded her, consisted of ebony and gold dust, her only passengers being monkeys and parrots. Sunday, June the 6th, longitude 24 degrees 38 minutes west, crossed the line to the great satisfaction of all on board, as we had been becalmed more than a week, and were weary of gazing upon the unruffled waters around us, or watching the sails as they idly flapped to and fro. Chess, backgammon, books and cards had ceased to beguile the hours away, and the only amusement left was lowering a boat and rowing about within a short distance of the ship. But this, even by those not pulling on the oars, was considered too fatiguing work, for a tropical sun was above us, and the heat was most intense. Our only resource was to give ourselves up to a sort of dolce far niente existence, and lounge upon the deck, sipping lemonade or lime juice, beneath a large awning which extended from four to the mizzen-masts. Tuesday, August the 7th, latitude 39 degrees 28 minutes south, longitude 136 degrees 31 minutes east. Early this morning one of the sailors died, and before noon the last services of the Church of England were read over his body. This was the first and only death that occurred during our long passage, and the solemnity of committing his last remains to their watery grave cast a saddening influence over the most thoughtless. I shall never forget the moment when the sewn-up hammock, with a gaily-coloured flag wrapped around it, was launched into the deep. Those who can witness with indifference a funeral on land would, I think, find it impossible to resist the thrilling awe inspired by such an event at sea. Friday the 20th Latitude 38 degrees 57 minutes south, longitude 140 degrees 5 minutes east. Sighted Moonlight Head, the next day Cape Otway, and in the afternoon of Sunday the 22nd we entered the heads and our pilot came on board. He was a smart active fellow and immediately anchored us within the bay, a heavy gale brewing, and then, after having done colonial justice to a substantial dinner, he edified us with the last Melbourne news. Not a spare room or bed to be had, no living at all under a pound a day, every one with ten fingers making ten to twenty pounds a week. Then, of course, no one goes to the diggings? Ah, oh, that pays better still. The gold obliged to be quarried, a pound weight of no value. The excitement that evening can scarcely be imagined. 
but it somewhat abated next morning on his telling us to diminish his accounts some two hundred per cent. Monday the 23rd. The wind high and blowing right against us. Compelled to remain at anchor, only too thankful to be in such safe quarters. Tuesday the 24th. Contented away at half-past seven in the morning, and passed the wrecks of two vessels, whose captains had attempted to come in without a pilot, rather than wait for one the increased number of vessels arriving, causing the pilots to be frequently all engaged. The bay, which is truly splendid, was crowded with shipping. In a few hours our anchor was lowered for the last time. Boats were pulled off towards our ship from Lyadet's beach. We were lowered into the first that came alongside. A twenty-minute pull to the landing-place, another minute, and we trod the golden shores of Victoria. End of section 1